Could we turn, please, to Matthew chapter 20? Matthew chapter 20. And if you could have that uh, bulletin insert at the ready, the one that had uh, several passages of Scripture listed on it. Right now, though, we're turning to Matthew chapter 20. You may recognize the name of J. Paul Getty. Born in 1892, Getty made his fortune in the ground floor days of the U.S. oil industry. Getty was a savvy investor who bought the mineral rights both in the U.S. and the Middle East in prime locations. And his investments in these oil-rich properties brought him exponential wealth. In 1966, at the age of 74, he was named the richest man in the world. His net worth was an estimated $1.2 billion, the equivalent of more than $7 billion in today's money. Seven years later, in 1973, when Getty was 81 years old, the family patriarch was thrust into the international news because of a family crisis. And the crisis centered around his 16-year-old grandson, John Paul Getty III, who was living in Rome. Despite his age, 16 years old, despite his age, he lived apart from his parents and with a girlfriend. And because of their youth, the two struggled financially, trying to make a living by selling their supposed artwork. Very late one night, while walking through Rome, the grandson was abducted. As it would turn out, he was kidnapped by members of the Italian mafia. His kidnappers sent a ransom note demanding a payment of $17 million for his safe return. That amount is the equivalent of $96 million in today's dollars. But some of the young man's own family suspected that the 16-year-old had plotted his own kidnapping to wring money out of his billionaire grandfather. But when a second letter came, the boy's father, John Paul Getty Jr., begged the family patriarch to pay the ransom. But J. Paul Getty refused. He argued that if he were to pay the ransom, it would put his other 13 grandchildren at risk of also being kidnapped. But not everyone was convinced this was the billionaire's true reason. Getty was well known by those who worked for him to be notoriously frugal. Some would say stingy. Here's an example. His mansion was the site of constant activity, people in and out. In his house was a constant stream of both workmen 
and businessmen. And he discovered that many people were using his phone to make their personal calls. And as a result, he installed in his own house a coin-operated payphone. In November of 1973, after the young man had been held captive in a cave for four months, a newspaper received an envelope containing a lock of hair, a human ear, and a threat to mutilate the young Getty further unless the ransom were paid. However, a new and substantially reduced figure for his ransom was now proposed. The original demand of $17 million had now been reduced to $3.2 million. But J. Paul Getty negotiated a deal for a lower amount of $2.9 million dollars. But of the $2.9 million, he would pay less, a sum of $2.2 million. And what was the reason he would not pay the full amount? Because the amount he had negotiated to pay was the maximum amount he could claim as a tax deduction. The remainder of the money he would lend to his son, the boy's father, which would have to be repaid to J. Paul Getty at an interest of 4%. Isn't it true that you cannot serve God in money? Money is a hard master. After the ransom was paid, the grandson was found alive, ironically, at a gas station approximately 200 miles south of Rome. His ear was missing, and the wound was badly infected. At his mother's suggestion, he called his grandfather to thank his grandfather for paying the ransom. But J. Paul Getty refused to take the call. Today, we give thanks to the one who paid our ransom, a ransom that was demanded for our safe return because we were held hostage by sin and by death, and, of course, by mankind's greatest enemy, the devil. But Jesus Christ gave everything that he had to gain our freedom. Let's look, please, at Matthew 20, verse 28. And Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. While every word in the Holy Bible is important, because every word in the Bible is inspired by God, this verse is especially important. And that is because this verse tells us why Jesus came and why he came to die. He gave his life as a ransom for us. We touched on this verse last week, but we're going to have a closer look at it today. As Jesus gives this explanation for his coming, 
It anticipates one of the most important and foundational doctrines in the Christian faith. And that doctrine doctrine is the substitutionary atonement. The substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary because Jesus served as our substitute. Even though we deserve death, for our sin, he took our place on the cross. And by taking our place, he made atonement for our sin. To make atonement, to make atonement for something is to make right a wrong. Here's an example. Last week, I borrowed an expensive power tool from Randy. Now, let's imagine after using it, I completely destroyed it. Now, this is hypothetical. (laughs) Let's imagine I misused it and I completely destroyed it. I would have to take, I would have to make atonement for my crime. I'd have to make right a wrong. And so what would I do? I would have to repay him for the damage that I caused. Now, how did Jesus, as our substitute, make atonement? That is, how did he pay for our crimes? The answer is, he paid with his blood. He gave his life so that all who believe in him can have forgiveness of sin, and through that forgiveness have eternal life. We're going to explore these important concepts as our further as our as our study unfolds further this morning. We want to have a better understanding of this key doctrine of the substitutionary atonement because as the Bible says, we want to know the reason for the hope that we have. And this hope This blessed assurance, knowing that all who put their faith in Christ comes because of the sacrifice he made. And this blessed assurance comes not because of our works, not because of our supposed goodness, but because of the goodness and the grace of God. Before we dig into this verse, that Christ gave his life as a ransom, We want to remember the context for these words. We want to remember the context of what led up to this statement, that he came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Last week, we heard Jesus give his third and final passion prediction, meaning, he was telling his disciples for the third time that he was going to Jerusalem to die. He said this at verse 18, chapter 20 of Matthew. Let's look there, please. Matthew 20, verse 18. He said, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. 
But no sooner did Jesus lay out the graphic details of his brutal death that the mother of two of his apostles, namely James and John, comes to Jesus asking for a favor. She says this at verse 21. Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand, the other on your left, in your kingdom. She wants a promotion for her two sons. She thinks that when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he is going to conquer the Romans, evict them from Israel. He is going to take the throne of David, and he is going to establish an earthly kingdom. And she wants her sons to have the most powerful and prestigious positions in this new kingdom. But we concluded that she is not acting independently. In fact, it's almost certain that her two sons put her up to this, to make this presumptuous request. And the reason we know that is because when Jesus responds to the request, Jesus doesn't respond to the mother, but to her two sons. We know that because in the Greek text, when he makes his response, the Greek word you is plural, not singular, which he would use if he were speaking to the mother, but plural, you. And so in verse 22, we read this. Jesus answered and said, you, that is the two of you, you, do, you don't know what you ask. He then goes on to speak about the cup, the cup that he was about to drink. And that cup, we decided, is a metaphor for suffering. The suffering that he was going to endure on the cross. And the reason Jesus says to the brothers, you do not know what you ask, is because they were not yet... they were not yet ready to drink from his cup. One day they would drink from it. They would suffer for the name of Christ. But only Jesus Christ could drink the cup. Only Jesus could accomplish what needed to be done on the cross. More on that in a moment. But the reason the disciples were not yet ready to drink from the cup is because they were still thinking and acting according to the ways of the world rather than the ways of God. The disciples, all of them in fact, all of the disciples were striving. They were all competing to find out who among them would be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom. Remember, they're thinking about an earthly kingdom. They've argued about it in the past, and they will argue about it again. In fact, in the upper room, they're going to argue about who among them is the greatest in the kingdom. They just don't seem to get it. Now, I submit, they were willing to endure hardship. They were even willing to suffer if it would earn them status and power in the earthly kingdom they believed Jesus was going to establish. But their view of greatness was completely distorted. That's why Jesus illustrated what worldly ambition looks like when he spoke about the Gentile kings and the Gentile high authorities. He said the worldly goal of people like this is to lord it over others, 
It is to exercise authority over. It is to push others down. And that is exactly what the disciples wanted. Listen, they, the disciples wanted to take the place of their Roman overlords. They hated the Romans, but they wanted their positions. They wanted to be great in the kingdom. And why did the disciples want to be great in the kingdom? Because they wanted others to serve them. That is the way of the world. Therefore, Jesus drew a sharp contrast between the ways of the world and the ways of the kingdom. Let's look, please, at verse 26. This is going to bring us up to our study verse. Jesus says at 26, he's, he's comparing now ways of the world, ways of the kingdom. Yet it shall not be so among you. Not this worldly ambition. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Notice, please, the opening words of verse 28. Do you see them? In the King James, they are just as. Those words, just as, tell us that we are to look to Jesus Christ as our supreme example. He is the model for how we are to live our lives. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, that is how we are to live our lives. But as we consider these words, we should immediately recognize that Jesus' greatest act of service is a service that only he could render. Only he was uniquely qualified to give his life as a ransom for many. No one else could possibly have done what he did. And we will endeavor this morning to learn more about why only Jesus was uniquely qualified to do what he did. But it remains true that he is our supreme example. Like Jesus, we are to sacrificially give of ourselves in order to serve God and others. As we think of Jesus coming, not to be served, but to serve, let's not miss how astounding that actually is. We might be accustomed to hearing it and not really understand the significance of that. When Jesus came and walked on this earth, there was no one who ever lived who deserved more than to be served. This is the creator of the heavens and the earth. This is the one who gives life and being to every living creature. This is the one who sustains the creation and holds all things together by his hand. And yet, the infinitely powerful and holy God willingly chose to humble himself and to dwell among us. Why? To die on the cross. To give his life as a ransom for many. This self-humbling condescension 
is described by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, verse 5. To aid our study, if we can now consult the insert that is in the bulletin. Let's look, please, at the first passage. Paul begins by reminding believers that Jesus is our supreme example. Therefore, we should look to him. We should look to him and have the same mindset, the same attitude as he does. And what is his attitude? It is an attitude of sacrificial service. Let's look, please, at Philippians 2.5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now, Paul is not suggesting that Jesus is not equal with God. Paul knows full well that Jesus is perfectly equal with God. What Paul means here is that Jesus did not cling, he did not grasp onto his heavenly throne. He did not insist on remaining on his throne, even though that was his divine right to do so. Instead, he willingly humbled himself by taking on flesh and coming to walk among us. Let's continue, verse 7. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. The Lord of heaven and earth willingly humbled himself. He took on the likeness of of human beings and did so for the most amazing reason. You see, rather than come to be served, he came to serve. And the pinnacle of his service is described at verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow. Now Paul's conclusion, where he ends up here, emphasizes an important biblical principle a principle that is repeated over and over again throughout Scripture. And here is that principle. Those who exalt themselves, they'll be brought low, while those who humble themselves will be exalted. And this principle is supremely and perfectly exemplified by Jesus. There was no one greater than the Son of God, He is the Almighty God from eternity past. He was perfectly equal with the Father, and yet He humbled Himself from the throne to the cross. And thus His name is the name that is above every name. You see, His name is powerful to save. Jesus. If we return, please, to Matthew 20, verse 28, and our study verse for today, we will notice how Jesus identifies himself. 
He identifies himself as the Son of Man. It is his favorite way to identify himself. Now, as he identifies himself, he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. As he identifies himself as the Son of Man, let's remember how Peter identified Jesus. It occurred when Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And you remember Peter's response, right? Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter confesses Jesus as the Son of God. And when Peter confesses Jesus as the Son of God, he is expressing one half of another crucial doctrine of our faith. And that doctrine is that our God, Jesus, is fully God and fully man. Fully God, simultaneously, fully God and fully man. The reason that doctrine is so important is because the only way Jesus would have been able to successfully give his life as a ransom for sinners is because he is fully God and fully man. Let's consider first why it is imperative that Jesus be fully man. Only if he were fully human could he take our place and be our substitute on the cross. You see, it was our sin, our human sin, that needed to be addressed. And the only way that human sin could be addressed is if he were fully human so that he could take our place and serve as our representative. The scripture is replete with examples that demonstrate his full humanity. Everything from his hunger to his tears. But one of the most important aspects of his humanity is described in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, we are told he was tempted in every way, just as we are. And yet, the scripture says, he was without sin. It was imperative that he know the full weight of temptation, the struggle that we face every day. But it was also imperative that he be completely free of sin. Because if he had sinned just once, he would not have been qualified to serve as our substitute. What was needed was an unblemished lamb, a lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus needed to be fully man to be our substitute. And he needed to be fully God to make atonement for our sin. Consider this. If Jesus were human, but not at the same time fully God, Jesus could not possibly have borne the weight of all the sin that was placed upon him. Bear in mind, every person who puts their faith in Christ, their sin, our sin, is heaped upon Jesus. Every sin from every generation is heaped upon him. Every sin, past, 
present, and future is heaped upon him. No one who was just human could have possibly borne all the weight of that sin. We needed God to do that. Let's also consider this. If Jesus were only human and not fully God, he could not have possibly borne the horror of God's wrath. Think of Jesus crying out on the cross, My God, why have you forsaken me? You see, only in his divine strength could he endure such a horror. And why did he endure that pain and that suffering on the cross for you and me? He tells us when he says, I have come not to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. I'd like to focus now on this key word, ransom. We're familiar with the concept of paying a ransom and was illustrated earlier when J. Paul Getty finally paid for the return of his grandson. But in order to get a better understanding of what a ransom is, let's consider how it was used and understood in the first century. The Greek word here is litron. And a litron was the redemption price of a slave. A ransom in the first century, a ransom in the first century was the redemption price of a slave. Let's consider an example. Imagine yourself living in the first century. And you own a small business. Let's say you're a carpenter or you're a storekeeper. But because of a fire, your business completely destroyed. In the first century, there was no fire insurance. There was no unemployment insurance. There was no welfare system of any kind. And so in a situation like this, if you lost your business, you were completely wiped out, your farm failed or whatever, You were facing starvation. And so the most likely and the most common scenario in that time is that you would sell yourself into slavery. You would join the household of a wealthy master and you would would perform whatever labor he commanded. And it was often difficult, back-breaking work. But you would sell yourself into slavery because you wanted to eat. You wanted to survive. Now, it was possible to buy back one's freedom, but given your status as a slave who does not get paid, the likelihood of that was next to zero. Your best hope would be if a member of your family A brother, a father, an uncle could pay the litron, could pay the ransom price and buy back your freedom. And when that occurred, that person would refer, be would referred to as your kinsman redeemer. When they bought you back, your relative bought you back and gave you back your freedom, that was your kinsman redeemer. Jesus Christ, our spiritual brother, is our, 
is our kinsman redeemer. And he paid the price to buy us out of bondage, to buy us out of slavery. Before we put our faith in Christ, we were slaves to sin. We were slaves to death. Was there any escaping death? Anybody? No. We could not escape death. We were slaves to death. We were slaves to sin. But Jesus paid the ransom and set us free. Listen. The Apostle John declared this. When the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Amen. Now, this concept of redemption is so important. And that is because when you are ransomed, when you are being bought back at a price, that leads to redemption. Because this concept of redemption is so important, I'd like to offer another illustration. Let's imagine a man who does not have enough money to pay an important bill. This is in today's world. Let's imagine a man who doesn't have enough money to pay an important bill. He knows that at the end of the week, he will get a paycheck, but he needs the money now to pay the bill before he gets paid. And so he brings a valuable piece of jewelry to the pawn shop. Let's say it's a ring. The pawn shop gives him the money he needs, and the pawn shop holds his jewelry. Now, after he gets his paycheck at the end of the week, he goes back to the pawn shop in order to get back his ring. He has to pay the amount of the loan plus a fee. And so, at the end of the week, when he has his ring back, he pays the ransom price and he redeems his ring. He gets, he buys back his ring. Therefore, here's the definition of of redemption. To redeem something is to pay the ransom price to free that which is being held. Get that? The man had to get back his ring, so he paid the ransom price in order to redeem or get back his ring. Now, it should be obvious to us, however, there is no comparison between a piece of jewelry and our eternal souls. For the redemption of our eternal souls, for our souls to be ransomed and bought back, It required something that would be of infinite value, something that would be absolutely precious to God. What what price could possibly be paid to free us and give eternal life to our souls? Well, there is only one thing that was valuable enough. The life of God's own Son. Let's look, please, at the next passage that appears on the insert. This is from the Apostle Peter. And we're reading now from 1 Peter 1.18. And Peter's speaking to believers. Look what he says. Peter says to believers, You were ransomed 
not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The illustration about the man at the pawn shop, that's got an obvious problem. We have nothing of sufficient value that we could possibly use to redeem ourselves. There is nothing that we could give God that is of sufficient value to free us from sin and death and the devil. Not our money, not our supposedly good works. Nothing we have, nothing we could ever do is sufficient to impress a perfectly holy and righteous God. There was only one thing that could satisfy God and gain our freedom. It was the blood of Christ. Of course, the blood of Christ represents his very life. But that raises another question. How did Christ's sacrifice on the cross, how did the shedding of his blood redeem us and gain our release? Well, in a word, forgiveness. Let's look at the next passage on the insert. And this is from the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians 1, verse 7. Paul says this, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. There is only one way to be freed. Only one way to be redeemed bought back from what was holding us hostage. There is only one way to be released from Satan's kingdom, which is the domain of death, and be brought into Christ's kingdom of eternal life. It is made possible by the shed blood of Christ. And when we put our faith in Christ, who gave his life as a ransom for us, we are forgiven. Forgiven forever. But how do we stand among the redeemed? How do we have our sins forgiven so that we can be rescued from that kingdom of death and have Christ bring us into his kingdom of life? The Bible says this, in order to be redeemed by the blood of Christ, you must repent and believe. Repent and believe. First and foremost, we must repent from the arrogant and mistaken belief that we can save ourselves by our good works. And then we must instead believe and believe with all our heart that Christ died for our sin. Listen, Christ did not die for sin in general. It's not a theological issue. Each of us must look into our own hearts and confess to God, God, Jesus Christ died for my sin. Let's ask a final question. If we have or will this day put our faith in Christ and Christ alone, what then are we to do? 
How are the redeemed of the Lord to live our lives? Let's look at the last passage that appears on the insert. At 1 Corinthians 6.20, Paul says this, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Look, verse 20. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I believe this returns us to the central question that Jesus was impressing upon his disciples on the road to Jerusalem. Greatness, greatness is not found in climbing the world's ladder such that we might be served. True greatness is shown when we humbly serve God and others. And so here's the final question for this morning, something for you to consider this week. If you are a believer, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you were bought with a price, how then, as Paul says, how then will you glorify God in your body and in your spirit? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for one of the greatest truths this world has seen. It has a strange name, but it says so much in so few words. It is the substitutionary atonement. You took our place on the cross to die for us so that all who believe can have eternal life. And how did you do that? Through the atonement. You made right a wrong And you did so by paying with your own life. And for this, we are grateful. And this we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.